Father, forgive us for that. We ask you to work, to uh, break the back of the sicknesses that are going around in our, our, our midst, both at Grace Fellowship and all over our community. We ask God that you would uh, watch over us and care for us, bring us back to full health and no time at all. Lord, we ask for your help in these things. Help us to go through these trials with great faith, believing in you. Father, we pray um, for there are many people in our congregation who are dealing with more um, serious illnesses, illnesses that even threaten their lives. And Father, I pray that you would um, be with our brothers and sisters. We especially pray for John and Allie and Lord, um, Nora J and J-Dub, Lord, we just ask that you would, um, that you would watch over John, God, that your hand would touch him, and that you, Lord, would strengthen him for the fight ahead. Father, we ask that in all of these things that his spirit would be encouraged, even as his flesh goes through this trial and tribulation and we ask God for him to remain strong in you, that his faith would be encouraged and strengthened, that he would come through this sickness with a greater perspective of your goodness and your greatness and your power and your strength, your majesty and your mercy and your grace. And Father, that at the end of this trial, that he would be able to sing your praises wherever he goes, that he would be a testimony to your deliverance. Father, we pray for Allie as she nurses him and cares for him. And, and Lord, we know that there are many things that cause anxiety during these times. We pray, God, you would protect their minds from this overwhelming anxiety that can come. Lord, when they worry and when they have anxiety, would they run to you? And would they be honest with one another and with us as their community of faith? Father, we pray for the children that you would strengthen and care for them, watch over them. Help them to not be afraid. Lord, be with us as a church that we would respond appropriately, that we would lavish them with love and care and mercy and grace uh, as vessels of your work in their lives. Father, when, um, when anything comes to mind, whether it be the most important thing, prayer, or the most simple thing like buying groceries, may your body respond to that prompting immediately and without any question. Because, God, we know that you will meet all of their needs, and yet those needs will be met through us. Father, we pray that you would be with uh, Marshall and Jill and, and their children, Lord. We thank you for the blessing of life. God, as, I, as they labor on the mission field, God, for them to see that you've blessed their family with another little one to care for, we pray for her. We ask, God, that you would strengthen her and that she would grow strong in you, and that, Lord, you would be with the family as they adjust to the dynamics of three children and yet still try to labor in the field. We pray you would prosper them and keep them and make your face shine upon them. Let them know that we are praying for them, God, uh, without ceasing. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask that your spirit would guide us, that you would speak your word powerfully to the hearts and souls of those gathered in this place. And God, that you would transform lives and that you would sober us to the realities of life, and that we would leave ready to do war day in and day out for your glory and for our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can take your Bible and turn to Romans and uh, chapter 7, and we'll be in verses 18 through 20 today. Burning coal, that's the name of the, of the sermon, the burning coal. But as you're turning there, I would make mention, we've said it uh, at least once, if not other times also during this service already, and for you that have been with us a long time, this is not a surprise to you, but, um, I, but some of you may not know this, um, is Reformation Sunday. And this is a day that we set aside here at Grace Fellowship and many around the world set aside to honor and celebrate the work that God did 505 years ago in the church when after a long period of confusion and wandering from the truth God called his church back to biblical Christianity now that's not to say 
that there was ever a time when biblical Christianity was not being lived out. God has always preserved his church. And so all through time, there were faithful men and women loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. But what we're saying is that 505 years ago in the West, in Western Christianity, the church had become so corrupted at its core that it was, it was in spite of the church that people were being saved. It was in spite of the church that people were truly believing the gospel. And what God did in the, those days through, through the work of many men and many women was to call the church back and bring great revival on the church. I mean, we call it a reformation. That's what it is. But it's also a revival. Let's not forget, God's Spirit did amazing work among the, the believers, and it spread throughout the world and had great impacts, and it's still having impacts even today. It's still going on, as God's work always continues. Listen, when God begins a work, He finishes the work. And in the work of Reformation, He called the church back to biblical Christianity, and so until He comes again, He will be calling the church to biblical Christianity. So, it's reformed and always, what? Reforming. This became the motto. Reformed and always reforming. There's always work to be done in my heart, in your heart, in Grace Fellowship's body, in the body of, of, the, of the world, the body of the church around the world. And so, we do honor this day. We set it aside on our calendars because it was life-changing and life-giving. And we are children of that great revival. And so we praise God for that. We praise God for uh, that reality. And no better letter for us to be studying than the letter written to the Romans from the pen of Paul. I mean, 20 years after his salvation, Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. He's a 20-year-old Christian. You know, maybe we don't think about that. You know, we just see Paul... And we kind of know there was a backstory, but we just kind of see him as the great apostle, you know. And it's interesting in his life with Christ, you know, you pick up these, these little nuggets through his letters about how he even viewed himself in the stages of his Christianity. Early in his Christianity, when he wrote a letter to the Corinthians, he called himself the least of all the apostles. And, uh, and so we see that he viewed himself as one who was born out of time, one who came through the ministry of Jesus Christ, but not during that ministry in Galilee and Judea, but after the fact, when he, was, when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he says, like, I'm, I'm the least. Now, we see him as the super apostle, right? We see him as the great apostle. But he saw himself as the least apostle. You know, and then later he writes that he was the, he was, in a sense, he was the least of the saints. So now he's moved from as he's maturing, look what he's done. He's moved from the least of the apostles to, I'm just kind of a normal saint. I'm just one of God's people. And then later in his writing, in 1 Timothy, what do we find? But he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Well, what can we take away from that? Well, let me give you a, an idea of what you can take away from something that simple. The more mature you become, the more simple you realize you really are. The progress of Christian faith is not from, from the point of thinking you're a sinner to the point of thinking you're okay, but it's rather from the point of thinking, man, what an amazing grace has been given to me. I'm ready to go to, well, I can barely make it through the day without him. Without him. I need him every day, every moment of every day. And Paul had that experience. And yet he was called to a great work. Remember, in Romans chapter 1, he says he is a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. What? Which was promised to us in the Old Covenant, to, 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 through the prophets and through the scriptures. All the things that concerned God's Son, the one who came as a descendant of David, the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, with power. According to the spirit of holiness, he says, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But then in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says this, 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about. So now he's going to tell us the purpose. What is the purpose? What is the active purpose of Paul when he writes the letter? Is he writing a systematic theology? No. He's not writing a systematic theology. Is he writing to, uh, to just talk about fine points of the Christian faith? No. That's not all that he's doing. Does he write about doctrine? Yes. But is his focus and emphasis and the end of his writing to help them know some good doctrine? No. He says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The purpose of the Apostle Paul for the book of Romans was not so your head would be full of knowledge, but so that your hands and your feet and your mouth and your head would be directed towards the obedience of faith. Or, we might say that same thing in our own words. We might say it this way. Listen, faith fueled obedience. Why is Paul writing Romans? I'm writing Romans so that you Roman Christians, and truly Christians around the globe, and for all time... Might, might have a faith-fueled obedience in his name, for his name. I, I'm, I'm writing this letter to you so you understand who you were in your sin. And so that you might understand how God has saved you from the consequence and the power of your sin. So that you might live every day in the new life given to you as a gift to the glory of God full of obedience that is fueled, carried out in faith. You understand what I'm saying to you? We go to Romans, and we've been guilty of it, I think, at times. All of us in here, if we'll be honest, even as we preach through this sermon series, we're like, oh man, I'm learning so much new stuff. I'm learning so much new stuff. Listen, learning new stuff is great. Seeing the same truth from a different perspective is great. But if it doesn't lead to faith-fueled obedience, it's worthless. That's what Paul would say. I'm not writing to you, Grace Fellowship, that you might just know some things. I'm writing so that you might live a life carried out by faith in the name of Jesus Christ for His glory. And if you do, you will be obedient to Him. It's no different than Jesus in the end of his life when he's in the upper room with his men. He says, if you love me, if you love me, what? You will obey my commands. Now listen to me. If you truly know me and you love me, they will know you. They will know you by the way you love. Because when you carry out God's commands, it emanates to his glory, and to the good of all people. When you carry out his commands. You know, I, I just think we have a truncated, a shortened discipleship. That's all I'm saying. I, I admit, I've been guilty of it. And I, I'll probably be guilty of it again. And I'll need you to say, hey, you're getting, you're getting off, brother. But some of us think that the end of discipleship is just knowing some more things. It's not discipleship unless it's the end is the glory of God. And the only way God is glorified is if we obey Him. And we cannot obey Him without it being fueled by faith. I'm writing to you so that you might be obedient according to the faith. In His name. And then He launches off into, we know all of this stuff in verses chapters 1 through 2 telling us how fallen we are in our natural state, how we're all sinners. And then in verse chapter 3, he begins to just unpack that truth and really drive it down. He presents the gospel to us for the first time, like really pours out the heart of the gospel in 325 and 20, uh, through 26 in chapter 3. And then he says something very amazing at the end of verse 31, uh, chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law? You see, when he said, 
at the beginning, verse chapter 1, obedience. The Jewish mind and Christians of that day and Christians in our day thought obedience. Okay, the law. The law. We just got to do what it says. And Paul's teaching says you can't do what it says. It has no power to deliver you from your sin. It has no power to bring you to obedience. It has no power to transform your soul, this law. It doesn't have the power to change you. Well, then this faith must throw the law out. It must cancel it. And Paul says in verse 31, no, on the contrary. The belief in faith and obedience through faith upholds the law. See, there's fingerprints all through Romans, the first part, to get us to chapter 7 so we can rightly understand chapter 7. What I'm afraid we do, like last week, some of us were tempted to do when Corey preached and he talked about sin being the fault for our failure in life. And then people left, some of you, thinking, well, okay, well, I got a perfectly built-in excuse. I go do the wrong thing and I get caught and say, well, it's not me, it's my sin. Like, in other words, we get down so minute, on such a minute level, we get down and we're looking at this one tree and we miss the whole forest. And what I'm doing right now in this introduction is getting us back up above the forest so we can see it. Everything he's saying in chapter 7 is connected to his main purpose for writing the book, which is faith-fueled obedience. So if you left thinking... Boy, my sin's the problem, so I'm going to do some good things through the law to correct my sin. You missed the point. And if you left saying, well, I can't keep the law, so I'll just go sin and grace will cover it, you missed the point. You got in this ditch and you got out of that ditch and went into this ditch. We're constantly living in the ditch. We're constantly going from one extreme to the other extreme, to the other extreme, to the other extreme. And what God wants to do through these writings is bring us to the gospel middle, bring us to the center of the road. He wants to bring us in. And so we move through the letter and we see these little hints about the law. And in Romans 5, he tells us, in beginning of verse 12, that here's the deal. We have been transformed and we have been brought from the headship of Adam into the headship of Christ. We've changed locations. And then in 6, he tells us the result of that being changed in location. Under the new covenant, under the headship of Christ, we are free from sin. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. We are free from the power of sin. It used to be our master, and it's not our master anymore. We have a new master, and that new master rules the day, sits on the throne of our life, directs our every movement and action and word. And we leave chapter 6 on a high. We should leave on a high anyway. Like bouncing, reverberating with this idea of I'm free. I'm free. Thank God I'm free. And you leave and you no more get in the parking lot before you sin again. And Paul knew that. That's why he wrote Romans 7. So, if we're free, are we perfect? Are we to expect as Christians to never sin again? Paul's answering the question in relation to the law. Because, see, he says we're free from the law because we died to the law. We've died to the old way, the old covenant. We've died to it. And we've been made alive now in Christ. We've been made alive. We have a new husband, and that husband is Christ. And we live in a new husband New relationship, new covenant. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But here's the reality. Is the law sinful? That's his question in verse 7. Is the law itself sin? Never. By no means. It's not sin. It's rather, it's rather holy and righteous and good. And yet sin seizes an opportunity from the law to drive us into more sin. Verse 13, he asks another question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. The law didn't bring us death. It's sin that brought us death. It's sin that brought us death. 
Look at verse 13 when he says, sin, it's, it was sin producing death in me is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What the law has done is shown us our sin, and when it showed our sin to us, the sin we had already in us, in our flesh, became more sinful. It flamed up inside of us, and we rebelled. It revealed it, and when it was revealed, we fell further into it. We have this greater temptation to it, this draw. I mean, look at how strong the language is. Corey covered it last week. I don't want to recover that same ground except just to make the point to set us up for today. Look what it says. The law, we know that the law, verse 14, is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh. Sold under sin. Sin still there. It's present with me. I, I, I know the law is spiritual. I know the law is good. But I still live in this body. And in this body, in this flesh, are these natural inclinations. And those natural inclinations are drawing me into rebellion against God. Always going on in my flesh is this, this constant draw towards breaking God's commandments. And so, he says in verse 17... For I, he says in verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And that was the point at which many of you left saying, there's my out. The next time my wife calls me on my sin, I'll just blame it on the sin. It's not me, it's the sin. And so I want to clear that up. Verse, Paul's going to clear that up in verses 18 through 20. I want to clear that up with you. Listen, here's what I want you to know. John Owen, as many of you know, my Puritan uh, hero, you might say. He wrote this small work called Indwelling Sin. It's like 400 and some pages long. And he's expositing chapter 7, verse 24. When you think the sermons and the sermon series at Grace Fellowship are long, just keep it in mind. And this is what he said about this, what we're about to talk about. And I want to give it to you, but hopefully it'll be a vivid picture for you. He says this, he says, listen, your house, your life is like a house. It's a biblical metaphor. It's like a house. And inside of that house, inside of your house, is a burning coal. And it's not just in one place, it's all through the house. There are these burning coals. They're hot. They're ready to burst into flame at any moment. And if you don't watch it, if you don't have a watchful disposition towards those burning coals, they will burn your house down. They will burn your house down. Will they take your eternal life? They cannot. That's impossible because they have no power over you. You've been set free. You now are in the new man. You are a part of the new creation. But you're still in the flesh, and in your flesh are these embers, these glowing embers, coals that are hot in passion towards sin. And if you don't watch it, it will burn your house down. Your life will be destroyed and consumed with the passions of your flesh. You have to be watchful, Christian. You have to be watchful, he says. The problem is not the, the environment and the temptation, he says, out there. The problem is the coal that burns inside of me. And everything that touches the coal burns. It's set on fire. See, the Roman Catholic Church had taught for years that that wasn't the case. They taught that after your baptism and your original sin being washed away in that baptism... That inside your life, inside your house, wasn't a burning coal. It was just kindling wood. There was all this kindling. You know what kindling is? It's small little pieces of wood or material that you light to start the larger fire. And what Rome taught was 
after your baptism, there's just these piles of kindling. And as long as you don't get near sin, very external thinking, as long as you don't get near it out there, it won't start the fire. So, you had, the, you had, to, you had to obey. Obedience, outward obedience and compliance brings you freedom from sin. But what we know from the scripture is not that. It's not that if we're good and we're holy and as long as we don't touch something unholy, we're okay. That's not true, is it? Is that what you think about yourself? Most of us can't dream without sinning. Maybe I should preach a sermon on that one day. Yes, Christian, you, very often, I, sin even as we sleep. Your dreams are not passive things. That dream of lust boiling over into sexual sin is a problem. It's the sickness of sin that still dwells in us. How hopeless is our condition in our flesh? We can't even sleep without sinning. So you think that if you just stay away from the bad people, you're going to be okay? No. I contend, the Bible contends, John Owen contends, all the great masters of the faith have contended that you could be on a deserted island all by yourself and it would be the most wicked island that ever existed. Why? Because sin dwells in us. Sin dwells in us. Sin's not the biggest problem. It's not out there. It's in here. And Corey talked to us about that by using that fancy word concupiscence, which I sent him in an email or uh, uh, article, and then he made it a title for his sermon. And that wasn't the point of the sending and the stuff anyway. But he did it because he's funny like that. Concupiscence, what is it? It's the sickness within us that produces all types of sinfulness, all types of sinfulness. It's in our flesh. Verse 18, he goes further. Our verse for today. We want to see that nothing dwells, nothing good dwells in us. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Notice how he gives the caption. Now, some people have identified this story that Paul's writing in Romans 7. We said early in the series, I want to say it again, we believe that Paul is writing an autobiographical sketch of his current life as an apostle. This is his 20-year-old Christian mature life that he's writing about. This is not Paul before he became a Christian. This is not a story mainly about Adam's sin and Paul looking back at Adam's sin and saying, well, all the children of Adam have this, and, and, and using that. It's not Paul writing about the history of Israel, although those things are fine and good, and they're true to an extent. But what Paul's writing about in Romans 7 is his current Christian life. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And the reason I know, I feel confident that it's his current life, notice what he does. Why would he put the... The, the next phrase in there, if it was about his own life. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That, that's a complete statement if he's talking about lost Paul or lost man. But what does he do? He backs up and says, in my flesh. That is, in my flesh. He differentiates. He doesn't just leave it laying there. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You know, in my natural self, nothing good dwells. If I'm left to my own desires, my own inclinations, my own worldly existence, nothing good is there. Nothing good. It's all bad. How bad is it, Paul? All of it's bad. Everything. Everything. The coal is burning and it is emanating the heat of a fire that is waiting to burst out at any moment. It's just ready to flame up. You don't, you don't find it hard to sin, do you, Christian? Some of you are like, I'm not, that's a trapping question. That's like, any, any, any good lawyer knows, don't, that's leading and trapping. But we're trapped, aren't we? Don't you feel that? In the depth of your soul, don't you say, oh man, 
I've been a Christian for so long, and yet it's still in me. It's still in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, in my natural man. Nothing good's there. The second thing we need to see is that the new desires cannot be carried out by the old self. The new desires that you have because you are a believer, that new man, those new desires deep within the essence of who you are, we might say the ontological you, the new you that's living in this body of flesh, it can't carry out the desires given to it by God in fleshly means. Look at verse 19. For I do not do, oh, excuse me, verse 18 at the end there, but not the ability to carry it out. I have desires to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have this desire inside of me, now that I'm in Christ, to obey God. And yet I find that I don't have the ability in my flesh to do it. How often this is the case for us as Christians. How often it is our life, daily, experientially, that we, we, we find that it's a rule of our life. That the things that we want to do, because God has made us new can't be carried out in a fleshly way. So that leads me to ask you this question. Why do you do what you do? Practically speaking, we need to ask ourselves this all day, every day. Let me tell you why. Because even when you do a good thing, because you are in the body of flesh, it is corrupted by the concupiscence it is corrupted by the disease of sin. It is corrupted because you are not yet fully redeemed. Your soul, your person, your essence is changed. It's new. The old man is gone. The new has come. And yet that new man is living in a sin-riddled body. And so even when I go to do something good, I often find that that's the place where sin takes me down the wrong road. Let me give you an example. Your alarm clock gets set tonight because you hear this message. You're like, okay, I'm going to do war. I'm going to be watchful. And you set that alarm clock for 4 o'clock. And the alarm clock goes off and you know your plan. And your plan when you went to sleep is I'm going to get up and I'm going to read the word. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to get myself ready for this war. And then the alarm clock goes off. And you rouse from your deep, sinful slumber. <laughs> and you look at the clock. And you say, I need more sleep. And you go back to sleep. So you go nine minutes. Nine minutes, the best and worst nine minutes of your life. The snooze phase. Right? And so you snooze that thing three or four times. To which your spouse, if you're married, kicks you out of the bed finally. Because they didn't plan on getting up at 4 o'clock, but now they're up. And you roll in there, and you sit down in your special spot, and you have your Bible in front of you, and you start to pray. And when you start to pray, you remember, you know, you know, I, 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 you know, yesterday I was supposed to send that email. You know, that email's really important. I got, I, got to, I got to go do that right now. I'll get back to this praying. You go send the email. You sit back down. You say, all right, Lord, I'm ready now. It's a clean slate. I'm ready to go. And that was responsibility kicking in, Lord. I mean, it really, I really wanted to pray, but, you know, I'm a responsible person. I had to respond to my boss and stuff. That's why I did that. Lord, okay, Lord, be with me as I, okay, you doze off and you wake back up. And then you're looking at the word and you read it, and it's like reading words of stone. And you don't get anything from it. And you become frustrated. And so you shut the word. But when your family rises, you know, you know the one family member that's been awake the longest because they're like at 9 o'clock in their day and you're at like the beginning of your day. You know what I mean? They didn't just roll out of bed. So everybody starts rolling out of bed and this is what you do. You find ways to tell them how holy you are because you got up before them and read the word. And you praised them. And man, you're so good. Look at me. And they don't give you the due recognition of your... So you go to your workplace and you find a way to work it in there. You know, I'm a really committed saint. You know, I, I don't know. How about you? What do you mean you're committed? Well, I mean, I got up this morning at 4 o'clock. What time did you get up? Oh, just in time to get to work? 
we will, we will use anything is my point. We will use anything because of the sin that dwells in us to take even an obedient thing and make it obedience out of the flesh and not a faith-fueled obedience. You're coming home from work, you men, and you think, man, my wife, I'm going to serve my wife and my family. And when I get home, I pull in that driveway, man, I'm going to hit the door and I'm going to wash the kids in the bathtub, I'm going to cook dinner, I'm, we're going to sit down, we're going to study the word together, I'm going to pray for, I'm going to spend time on the couch drinking my favorite beverage, hot tea, and we're going to talk about her day, and I'm going to listen, I'm going to listen to her, I'm, I'm the best husband, I'm going to do this, and so you whip up the strength, and you run in there, and you start doing, and nobody notices what you're doing. And you start to think things like, what kind of sinners do I live with? <laughs> I mean, what does a man have to do? I mean, here I am. I've worked hard all day. I could have come home, kicked my feet up like all the other deadbeat dads and husbands. But no, what did I do? I came in here, I gave the kids baths, I cooked dinner, I did all this stuff. And now I'm sitting here listening to this woman God gave me, and she's just going on and on about the thing that doesn't even matter. And she hadn't once said thank you. The coal of sin is in your house. And every good thing you let touch it, it will consume it. It's sin. For the thing that I know I need to do and I want to do, I can't carry it out because I don't have the ability to do it. We are under the impression sometimes that our efforts are good enough. And so if I just try to do the good thing in my own strength, God will take it. And what the Bible's telling us here is that won't work. God hasn't called me to merely out of duty obey. What God's called me to is that inward desire to be lived out. But the problem is that inward desire is being muffled by the sin that so much besets me. It's smothering. It's overwhelming, it feels. I do not do what I want to do, is what he said. But I find myself continually acting in evil ways. Verse 19. I find myself constantly in evil ways. Even when I do the good thing, I mix it with sin. And therefore, it's corrupted. Indwelling sin drives us. It drives us continually. It's not the new man. It's the sin that dwells in us. Verse 20. Now if I do what I don't want to do, do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now we kind of did y'all dirty because that's the end of the text. That's it. I'm not going to go further than that. You know, I contemplated it all week, and yesterday I was thinking about it. And what I want to do right now is go to the hope. And Corey's sick at home, so I get away with it until he shows up here again. Because he always drives me to not leave you hopeless. But you see, I think if we don't remain in this place long enough, if we quickly run to the salve that's coming, we know it's there. And if you want to read ahead, that's fine. But see, what we often do is we run ahead. But what Paul wants us to do is soak in the fact that even as a new man, a Christian, living in this sin-popped, sin-riddled, sin-infected body of flesh, even that new man feels often hopeless in the flesh. I'm trying so hard and I'm not making progress. Is that your life? And be honest with yourself. Don't church it up. Don't dress it up. Don't try to look good. Don't be who you really are, you know. You are in the midst of a flesh that is burning with desires 
that you know are evil and you know they're evil and you know the good because the inward man is witnessing to the good and yet this continual war is going on. Every day there's a war going on. And if you try to act like a war's not going on, you will lose every battle that day. What is this? What's the purpose of this, Carlton? Why are you telling us this? This is dark. I don't like it. Because if you don't know just how bad it is and you don't know the diagnosis of the sickness you walk around with every day and you have no clue that you're in the middle of a war, you will sit at ease and be eaten alive, Christian. You will be eaten alive. If you don't wake up tomorrow saying, try to have these desires, they're coming up from that new man. And yet, even as those things are coming up, I'm trying to do it on my own, which is sinful. What you should be crying out is, oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? What you should be crying out is of the psalmist, how long, how long, oh Lord, until you deliver me? What we should be crying, the normal Christian life is the life of one crying out to God, Oh, God, have mercy on me. Oh, God, deliver me. Oh, God, why do I keep doing what I'm doing? Oh, Lord, why is it that I find a way to sin and mess it up every time? Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If it turns into, oh, I'm doing great. Everything's good. Sin's not a problem. What I'm saying, what Paul's saying is, you're the one most in danger. What Paul's been drawing on in Romans 6 and 7 is, I believe this, is the fact that in the Roman Empire, they were one of the most <laughs> maniacal people. I mean, you know, the way they carried out punishments were so insanely torturous. When a Roman citizen murdered another man, they would sometimes take that dead corpse and they would stand it up in front of that man and they would lash that dead corpse to the man that had murdered him. Face to face, hand to hand, foot to foot. And that man would walk around with that dead body staring him in the face. And that body, that dead body would become more and more hardened. Rigor mortis would set in. Decomposition would start. The stench of that rottening flesh in the nostrils and in the... Think about how disgusting and the, the disease that it brought on. And it would become so stiff that they couldn't even sit down they would be like boards they couldn't lay down they couldn't get free of it until finally they died disease would set in exhaustion would set in and the person who murdered that person would die in the presence of their 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 people now, you know can you imagine if you went into Aniston tomorrow or Oxford and you saw somebody walking around with a dead corpse tied to the front of them? See, that's who we were, Paul says, before Christ saved us. We were sentenced to death. Our old self was strapped to us. And we couldn't be rid of it. No matter what we wanted to do. No matter what we want to do, because in the analogy, it's a man that kills another man. But in our reality, before Christ, it was us. So even as we walked around, rigor mortis was setting in, and hardness was setting in, and stench was coming out. And there was nothing we could do to be free of it. We couldn't see around it. We couldn't cut it off of ourselves. We could not be free. And what Jesus did by the power of his grace is he cut the lashes and he set us free. From that corpse. It no longer had power over us. It no longer was sitting on the throne of our life. It no longer was encumbering us from seeing God and being with Him in His presence. 
It wasn't doing that anymore. But here's the thing. The disease that we gained from that dead corpse is still in our flesh. Still there. It hasn't been fully done away with. It's still there. The new man is alive, and he walks around free. And listen, you may come to a point where you no longer have a stench, a big stench when you walk into a room. I mean, when people see you come in, they're just so glad you're there. And they're so happy, and they see you as a holy person. But what you must always remember is that in your flesh, the disease is still there. It's not gone. You have to know that. Why do men like John Owen help us so much? Why do the Puritans, why do I commend to you the Puritans? Because they did two things really well. They knew God, and they knew themselves. They were doctors of God and his being, and they were doctors that could diagnose themselves. And because of that, they can diagnose us. And so that dead corpse is cut away. It's gone. And yet that disease that is spread to us before it was cut away is still in our flesh. And the new man is alive. And the disease is warring against the new man. And so what must the new man do? He must do war against the disease. Every second of every day he must do war against the disease. So why are you so accepting of your patterns of sin, Christian? Why do you have defenses and excuses for the things you do to disobey God? Why, when the stench becomes real to you in a moment of your sin, your sin playing itself out, do you immediately say, oh yeah, but it's not a big deal, grace covers it? If you act that way, the disease will spread and it will destroy your life. It can't take your soul. It has no power to send you and condemn you to hell. But it has every ability to destroy your life between here and the grave. Every ability. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your children. It will take your job. It will utterly destroy everything you love if you don't watch over it. If you don't live a life of war and you live a life of ease, you will soon find that the battle lines have come all the way in and you have no escape from that sin and then God God will have to call you <laughs> he'll have to call you home you understand how serious I am about this I mean like in my own life this is what I'm saying in my own life many of you know I've told you from this pulpit that as a young man I had many temptations towards lust and sexual sin. Before I became a Christian, that's who I was. I mean, even when I wasn't acting on it, it was always in my mind. And then I became a Christian at 19. And that dead corpse was cut away. And I felt such victory in that moment. And yet, soon after, realized, uh-oh, it's still there. And so I went to the man that was mentoring me, and he said, it doesn't rule you anymore. It's not your power, the power of your life anymore, but it's still a power in your life. It's not the power of your life, but it's the power in your life, and you've got to do war against it. And so he started pointing me towards the Puritans. He started pointing me to men like John Piper and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, thank God. And I began to listen to sermons about me. But here's the thing. That battle went on for not days, not weeks, not months years and years and years of messed up thinking wrong wrong and sinful impulses and even to this day 20 years not 20 um, however many years I'm 44 now I don't not give a math how many years it is listen still if I stop being watchful over that lust it'll fan into and it will begin to consume. Well, how long will I have to deal with that? Until this mortal flesh lays cold in a grave. And this new man is in the presence of Jesus. I will have to fight every day of my life. Because if I don't, it will consume whatever it touches.
and it will destroy whatever it comes in contact with. So to end this message for all of us Christians at Grace Fellowship, let's be a people at war with the sin that dwells in us. Not as Lone Ranger soldiers, but God's blessed us with a whole group of Christians that are warring against their sin. And the more we war against our sin and we band together to war against our sin, the more victories in the battles will be won. And the more the victories in the battles are won, the more we will experience the true self that we have been made to be. And the more we experience that, the more hope we have. The more hope we have, the more joy in Jesus we have. The more joy in Jesus we have, the more we go into the lost world to say, let him cut that corpse free and let you live. We'll preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That one of the great motivations, one of the great motivations of gospel mission is to be free of sin, which will motivate you to go help your brothers be free of sin. What I'm saying is we've taken the cure into ourselves, and the war, is, the, the war is won, and we're raging battles right now to see that day, right? And we want more people to join us in that war, which glorifies God and destroys our enemy, sin and Satan and the grave. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word and we turn toward your table, we are reminded that it is by your grace that this is true, that we are free, and yet we are battling every moment of every day. And if we're not battling, God, if it's not a war, if what I've described is not true of anyone in this room, then that is a grave sign that they may not be yours. For Lord, when we were in our flesh, we did what the flesh had power to make us do. We sinned constantly, forever, with no release and no, no remorse, really. But now that we are a Christian, now that we belong to you, the sin that dwells in us does war against us. And we are doing war against it. By the power of your Spirit, we pray, God that we would war until the day we draw our last breath and our mortal flesh lies cold in a grave and we are free finally to sin no more. It's in your name we pray. As Carlton began speaking about today being Reformation Sunday, I just want to emphasize that if you're not Roman Catholic,